I'm very full of matter. My wife has had to listen to me preach for a number of days before I could get here on several subjects. The facets of salvation are glorious, but so is this subject of the spheres of authority that God has placed in the world. And so we want to be at 1 Peter chapter 3, where we have the six verses that God's led us to today. You know, in in God's providential timing, He brings us to chapter 3 today. This is sermon number 24 in preaching through the book of 1 Peter. We have dealt with submission to civil rulers, civil government, federal government, state government, local magistrates, policemen. In verses 13 through 17, we have learned about submission to bosses on the job, whether it be your immediate supervisor, his boss, his boss, or the board of directors or the shareholders. Submission to employment masters was taught in verses 18 through 21, and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ was given there at the end of that chapter. And now we come to wives. There are four subjects dealt with in authority. First is civil rulers in verse 13 of chapter 2, then employment masters in verse 18 of chapter 2, then wives in verse 1 of chapter 3, then husbands in verse 7 of chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Amen. That includes Psalm 88 and 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The Bible is absolute truth. Your thoughts are vain. My thoughts are vain. Your heart is deceitful. My heart is deceitful. The Word of God is true. Amen. And we want to embrace it today. And ladies, my sisters... You wives in the congregation, the whole church loves you. You are a great group of women. But some of you can benefit by hearing this. All of you can benefit. Some of you can benefit more. Some of you younger women. Some of you women that haven't been here all that many years. Let's go through this and embrace it together. Husbands and wives, if we have not encouraged you to be the submissive, in subjection wives that you should have been, forgive us as husbands. We want to lead you to submission and subjection by submitting and being in subjection to those over us. We want to do it with the same level of zeal, cheerfulness, doting, affectionate, embracing the concept, embracing the office, humbling ourselves to it, and doing it with zeal without questioning or answering again, like this passage is going to ask of you toward us. I want us to embrace all the spheres of authority. If you will take the time to sit down and think about how we arrive here as little helpless babies that are the product of a loving man and a loving wife together as father and mother, it's stupendous. It really is. God could have sent us here all kinds of ways. There could be a big closet in heaven. And we're we're all made up ahead of time, all uniform, all standing there, rigid bodies, and he can blast us or zap, zap us with a spirit and send us down to earth and we could walk around from adulthood on. But we arrive as those little babies with these two loving parents and the two loving parents came together in a very unique relationship called marriage where the wife is subject to the husband and the two of them love the children. The children are to obey and honor the parents. Then they get a job and they have a master. Then they get together in kingdoms and have a king. Then they get together in churches and they need a leader like Moses or someone to lead them in their spiritual worship of God. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's the only way that it works. And the, the more we do it, the better we do it, the more we embrace it, 
the happier we'll all be. And the more fruitful we'll all be. And God will be glorified. Ladies, here's my goal for you. Twelve pages ahead, I want you to have this epitaph. Daughter of Sarah, a princess and diamond with God. Where did those words come from? 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. What's the definition of Sarah? Princess. Being in subjection as a good wife is in the sight of God of great price. Far above rubies. You're a diamond. A daughter of Sarah, a princess in diamond with God. That's my goal. I love every single one of you. Honestly and sincerely. And I've prepared this the best I know how, and the Lord's going to have to help me get through it in a timely way and in a way that uh, makes sense to all of you. Back in 1988, in the the latter months of 1988, I preached a series of messages entitled Maximizing Your Marriage. The first sermon was 105 minutes. Remember that when you get worried when we reach 55. 105 minutes. Today will not be 105 minutes. I'm an older man. I get tired. I am not tired today. I could go all day very easily. But 105 minutes, and if you go listen to it, and I've listened to it, though I've taught it, though I've read the outline, I've listened to it in the last two weeks. I took the women to task, and rightly so, in light of a generation that no longer believes in submission or obedience to husbands. And I did that for 105 minutes as thoroughly as I knew how. And it was harsh, and it was forward, and it was blunt, and it was direct, like I preach. And I hope that I am an accurate voice, crying in the wilderness and blasting God's gospel trumpet. And uh, I did it with intrepidation. When Paul said, I am with you in fear and trembling, I know exactly what those words mean. When I preach to you, it doesn't matter how confident I look or how confident I sound. I am intrepid sometimes about preaching God's word on subjects that might not be readily accepted. The most marvelous thing happened. Not the most marvelous. Those words would not be correct. An excellent, outstanding thing happened that following week. There was no email in those days or texting or tweeting. So in order to communicate, you had to go through a little bit more effort. You had to write a letter. You had to make a phone call or you had to pay a visit. By those three means, about half the women in the church told me, we want to hear that exact same thing Next Lord's Day. This is a true story, and those of you that were here know this, and if you will listen to sermon number two, you will find out that I preached another 105 minutes of the same material, but it sounds like an almost different sermon because I did try to rearrange it differently for those women because they said to me, the world never gives us even a reminder of these things. Every woman out there in the workplace, every woman that we run into talks differently, thinks differently. We've been bred that way. Some of us by women that were not in subjection to their husbands. We need to hear it again. There were men that visited me. There were men that cried in my office. There were men that told me how thankful they were for that. And that was a great moment in the history of this church. And that's available. I'm thank God for the witty inventions. I don't have to re-preach that message. It's all out there. I, I just listen to both of them with my wife. And thank you, brother, for all your labors to make that possible. Thank you, Lord, for the witty inventions to capture that and have it. And so that's there for you to listen to and to remember. And in the history of this church, it was a great event.
and I'm very thankful for it, and we have good wives. I just want to exhort all of you to be better, and to be better and better. And um, let's go into this. We don't live in Persia. Anybody believe that here? That we don't live in Persia. Persia, in some respects, was far better than here. I'm having a fantasy. It's a news break. Tomorrow night during Monday Night Football, bang! There's going to come an announcement and a loud noise over your television like it's a warning of a terrorist attack. And the president is going to take the podium and the president is going to tell all the men of this country to rule in your houses. And he's going to say, Come here, Michelle. And she's going to say, Yes, sir. Can you see that happening? In every language? Even in Ebonics? Because didn't it tell you in Esther chapter 1 that it was in every language? Every language! Every people! Because they understood the consequences of a bad precedent from the top down. There is wisdom, law, and judgment in Esther chapter 1. It's beautiful. O King Ahasuerus, if we don't deal properly with this matter, there will arise contempt and wrath in all the households of this nation and empire. Because the women will have contempt for their husbands because of what Vashti has done to you, and the husbands will be angry. We are going to have fighting conflict in every home unless this is dealt with properly. Wow. Well, whether our president does that or not tomorrow evening, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't watch Monday Night Football waiting for it. Let's, let's embrace it ourselves. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let me read verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Amen and amen, amen. thus saith the Lord. So we have our marching orders. Let's just go through these verses and understand them, the sense of them, and apply them a little bit for the profit of our lives. The word likewise starts off by telling us that it's in comparison to something that's gone before and that there's another sphere of authority to be dealt with. We had civil authority. I say this for the third time now. We had civil authority in verses 13 through 17. We had employment authority in verses 18 and the rest of First Peter chapter 2. Now it's wives. 
likewise. And so we come to this subject that, that is more personal than the rest. You know, Washington, D.C. is a long ways away. Columbia, South Carolina is a long ways away. The county and city offices of Greenville City and County are quite a ways away. We don't operate with them daily like we do with our husbands and wives. And so here we go. We have a more personal relationship to deal with. 24-7 almost in certain respects. We do not rationalize truth. We don't find truth by what-ifs. We find truth by revelation. We don't find truth by thinking. We find truth by believing. There are so many things in the Bible that we can't figure out. They're beyond our understanding, like the incarnation, like the 17 facets of salvation. We read them, and that's why I call them ridiculous, because it's hard to comprehend. It's called the unspeakable gift. If you can't speak it, you can't really think it, because it's beyond our mind. The Bible speaks of many things that are infinite. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And some of the things he says and does might not make perfectly good sense to us. And sometimes we may never arrive at perfect understanding of some of those things. But where we don't, we still embrace. Because we want to do it the Lord's way. And so here comes this personal relationship of a husband and his wife. And ladies, I love all of you. And and for the moment, in, in a certain respect, I almost wish I was a wife. I am a wife to the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'm talking about earthly marriages because when the Bible says, likewise, ye wives, you should get excited because there's a section of Scripture for you. And if there's a section of Scripture for you that God wrote and where God said, if you do it this way, you're doing it well, and you are a daughter like Sarah, and you are of great price in my sight. Is that exciting? Remember the epitaph. Daughter of Sarah, a diamond and princess of God. Let's be like Cornelius was. I wrote it to you yesterday. I just put the reference there. I did have a sentence about it. Cornelius, when he sent for Peter, when Peter arrived, he fell down at Peter's feet. And Peter said, get up, I'm a man just like you. And uh, Cornelius said, you've done well and that you got here fast. Because I have all of my household domestic servants and children and cousins and whoever else he had there, and we are all here present before God to hear whatsoever is commanded you of God. You lay the Word of God on us. Now, ladies, are you feeling that way? Let's feel that way. Let's do that. And I'm not setting you up for a terrible bashing. I, I hope you can tell already I'm pretty positive about this. And if you, I've already said some nice things. And if you read my preparatory yesterday... You know, I'm very excited about this in a positive way. I just want you all to be better. We want to be better. Listen, the men talk among ourselves about how we can obey our bosses better on the job and how we can obey our government better. I'll just throw a little tidbit out to show you how far we're going with it. There's a certain pastor that some of you have heard that has waxed long and loud about abusing the grace period in paying obligations. Well, that pastor, wherever he is this morning, is asking other men, have we been abusing the grace margin in the speed limits? That's all. That's all. It's enough for me. The point being, we want to submit to the authorities over us. 
We want to show you how. We want to lead our families. So we need to do it. We need to do it in thought. We need to do it in word. And we need to do it in deed. We need to do it consistently. We need to do it diligently. We need to do it faithfully. We need to do it thoroughly. At all times. We want to show you how. We understand. We're not sorry God made you women. We are very thankful. And we are thankful that He sent you to us. We're very thankful for the arranged marriages that God has put together. God in infinite wisdom designed and ordained five spheres of human authority. Parents over children. Husband over wife. Masters over employees. Governments over citizens. Pastors over churches. And so when it works together, and when they submit, and when the one in authority fulfills his obligations that he owes to God, it works wonderfully. It's, it's wonderful. If you, if you stop and think about what if you pull this authority sphere away, or what if there's no employment, masters? You mean we're all out there with our hoe, working on another row of beans, living from hand to mouth, because there's no capital invested and there's no organized structure to take on the big risks and have the big plans and the long-term goals of a company? And so it is, we need husbands and wives together. We live in the perilous times of the last days. This subject isn't important. We need to cast down all of our imaginations and all of our thoughts and all of our questions and all of our resentments and all of our resisting and all of our, I don't like that, and embrace what God said. It's the right way. If you embrace it, He'll explain it. We don't wait for Him to explain it beyond what He's already explained it before we embrace it. We embrace it. And He has shown us so much. In all the spheres. And we're thankful for that. Let's humble ourselves. This is how we're supposed to live in this world. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Dearly beloved, this is where Peter started the second half of his epistle. Up through chapter 2 and verse 10, Peter was explaining what God had done for them through Jesus Christ and that Jesus was coming back for them. This is the gospel of hope. This is the epistle of hope, First Peter is. At chapter 11, there's a transition it goes into what we should be doing for the Lord. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. One of those is rebellion against authority. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then it goes into authority. This is how we're supposed to live in this world. And when God inspired this epistle, and this is the epistle God's put before our eyes right now. When God inspired this one, how we're to live in this world, submission, submission, submission. Three in a row. And we're with, we're at the third one right now. Likewise, ye wives. Now there isn't a wife without a marriage. Little girls aren't born wives. Little girls are born girls. Little girls grow up and become women. But women aren't even wives. Some wives lose their husbands and they're no longer wives. They're widows. But it's to wives. So it's married women that I'm addressing right now. And every young woman that hopes someday to be married, she should be thinking, I want to be the kind of wife that Sarah was. I want to be the kind of wife that First Peter chapter 3 describes. I want him to hurry up and get down to some practical things so I can know how I ought to be a wife. So that we grow up, girls, we grow up to be a daughter of Sarah. A princess and diamond with God. Ye wives. 
Marriage was not a trial and error effort of Neanderthal parents. Marriage is an institution of God and God ordained it and God sets the rules for it. God created it. If we want to know anything about marriage, we don't go to our experiences, we don't go to our parents, we don't go to books at Barnes & Noble, we don't go to books at Christian Lifeway. We go to the Word of God and find out what God has to say about the thing that He created and instituted. The book and counsel most needed is plain preaching and full obedience to God's Word. God has the right to dictate the use of His institution. Every other opinion should be hated. Like the Bible teaches us to hate. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, David said, and I hate every false way. Women, men, fathers, husbands, wives, daughters, let's learn to do it God's way. Let's be committed to doing it God's way. Only God's way. Always God's way. Forever God's way. Lord, help us. There's no cute rules to maximize marriage. Hard work applying God's Word is the only way to do it. It's to hear what God has to say and then to do what God said. Rationalization is rebellion disguised under questions or what ifs or this or that or limitations. We don't want to rationalize it. Of course there are exceptions. But if you read the Bible, if you'll read the Bible like I read the Bible, you'll find out that God does not put the exceptions in with the lesson. Because that does, that so dilutes the lesson. We do expect to go elsewhere and find. And you know, from the very beginning, because I was taught while a single-digit child that a wife's submission to her husband has its limitations. I was a pastor's son. I heard about women that would not fulfill their church responsibilities or their baptismal responsibilities to the Lord Jesus Christ because their husbands didn't want them to. As a single-digit child... This is not something I concocted on my vacation. I haven't changed a whit. When I first became the pastor of this church, I encountered a family that was influenced by a very influential woman in this city. Elizabeth Rice Hanford. She wrote a little book, John R. Rice's daughter, married to Walter Hanford, the pastor of Southside Baptist Church for a while. She wrote a book entitled, Me, Obey Him. And in that book, she taught what she called biblical patriarchy, in which a wife is excused from all sin before God as long as she's obeying her husband. I've read the book. I've dealt with people that were destroyed by that heresy. People that believed everything else this church believed, but would not come and attend this church because we preached that a woman should obey God rather than her husband. There is a message that I have preached twice in this church entitled, When Your Husband's a Fool. The whole purpose of the message is to teach that there are limitations to a husband's authority over his wife. Always taught that. But you know what? When we go into 1 Peter chapter 3, until we get to the last clause, we don't worry about the exceptions. We embrace the lesson. Because the exceptions are exceptions. We want the general lesson. And the Lord always taught that way. You know, that's why the Bible is difficult to understand sometimes when he's preaching about swearing and he blasts off with, thou shalt not let your yeas be yea and your nays nay, and anything more than that is of evil. You know, that's strong, Lord. And so you've got to compare the Bible with the Bible. But when he wants to make a point that there was a lot of illicit, ungodly, illegal swearing going on in Israel, that's the way he would condemn it by an onslaught of power and force and just blast it to smithereens. Then 
You know, if we're told to compare spiritual things with spiritual, we arrive at the truth by comparing it all. We don't run off with the Mennonites, Quakers, and Jehovah's Witnesses and never take an oath in court because of those words of the Lord Jesus Christ because we know that there are oaths taught in other places in the Bible. And we understand that about here. We'll get to it in the last clause, and we will get to the last clause. Ye wives, the basic problem in relationships, in everything, the basic problem is always and only sinful living patterns and rebellion. And so we preach. So we come together in an assembly like this. All problems in any part of your life are always and only the result of sin. So if we'll do it God's way, things can get much better. You can be much happier. I know all about living in rebellion. I know all about living haughtily. I know all about despising parental authority. I know all about despising government authority. I know quite a bit about it. And I know how happy I was then. If you'd have asked me, I'd have told you I was the most miserable person on God's earth. My family believed that I was the most miserable person on God's earth. But by His grace... Humbling yourself to authority and just embracing it is a wonderful relief for the soul because it's doing it God's way and He blesses us for it. If our president was to come in here, I would put all of you to shame in the way that I embraced him and gave him honor. I would not be standoffish. I would not be forward and disrespectful. But I would embrace him and honor him and put you all to shame by the grace of God I would because he deserves it. Honor to whom honor is due. Honor the king. Fear God and the king. I wouldn't compromise my religion one whit. And if he asked my opinion of some of his practices and policies, I would give him a respectful and humble answer that would be very similar to what you hear out of this pulpit. The tone and the choice of vocabulary might be a little different. Let's embrace authority. My dear sisters, if you want to hear more, if you feel that I get through this, and I didn't cover as much practical ground as you would like to hear. That's why we have ladies' meetings. And I'm thankful for a church, and I'm thankful for a wife, and I hope that you ladies are thankful for her as well, for the efforts made once a month, once a quarter, to present God's rules for women. Because the Bible tells older women to do that, that the older women are to teach the younger women to obey their husbands. And that's what these six verses are about, is subjection, submission, and obedience. All six are about that. And it's done in this church, and it's been done before. There was preached 12, 13, 14 years ago. This is, time is racing by. Perfect marriages, 13 years ago. Marriage essentials, 8 years ago. The role of the woman, the importance of your marriage, 3 years ago. Maximizing your marriage, 26 years ago. A marriage covenant, 12 years ago. Marriage in the Lord, 13 years ago. Love the one you're with, 7 years ago. Proverbs, marriage commentaries from the, from the chap, the verses of Proverbs. Couples retreats, there's lots of material. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the two long sermons that are the first two of the series, Maximizing Your Marriage from 1988. That means going to the homepage of our website. That means clicking on sermons. That means clicking on all to get rid of the topical distinctions. And then clicking on 1900s. Yep, your pastor has preached in two different centuries. So it'll say 1900s. He's an old man. Click. And then pull down to 1988 and you'll see Maximizing Your Marriage number 1. Click on that little arrow and it'll start streaming immediately. Then you can go to the second one 
and, and hear me 26 years ago saying that I was blown away by the women of the church wanting to hear it again. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection. So the issue is subjection. We have the verb right here, be in subjection. That means to subject yourself, to surrender to your husband. And it is again done in the last part of verse 5. This is the whole subject. Even though it gets off on adorning, the adorning in verses 3 and 4 is just a little side lesson of the priorities of a true Christian wife. Her priority is this thing right here. Her humble, submissive, meek and quiet heart and spirit wanting to submit to her husband that results in real subjection to that husband. And so it's just contrasting the women, you know, have from the beginning have wanted to adorn themselves, pretty up their hair, pretty up their face, pretty up their clothes. I have 25 subjects that are on a list for Wednesday evening. One of them might be going through Isaiah chapter 3 verses 16 through 24 where God shows that women 3,000, 2,750 years ago had as many accessories or more than women today. It is amazing. They've always wanted to adorn themselves, but the real adornment that God wants from women is a submissive and meek and quiet, respectful, reverential, surrendered. I'm all yours. Your life is my life. I want to make you the best husband I can be. My purpose in life is you, kind of a woman. And that's taught throughout this. And Sarah was that kind of a woman. That woman followed Abraham on a 700-mile circuitous route from Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran, down into Canaan, down into Egypt, back among the Philistines. Do you know when he finally built her a house? Do you know when Abraham finally built Sarah a house? And he had some bucks. No, he never did. That's a good woman. How many of you wives have been waiting for a house? You weren't content with an apartment? Sarah didn't have an apartment. She had a tent. She was a good woman. You say, I know some faults in her life. Isn't God merciful? He knows your faults too. Aren't you glad that He's merciful towards Sarah, which means He'll be merciful towards you? Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection. So the word is subjection, which means to render yourself submissive or dependent on another person. To bring yourself into a state of subordination or submission. To become subject to that person. To submit means to place yourself under the control of a person in authority or power. To submit to your husband, to sub- to put yourself in subjection, is to surrender yourself to your husband, to put yourself under his control, his direction, his rules, his guidance, his goals, his purposes for life. To surrender yourself, to yield to a person or his rule. That's what it means to be in subjection and to submit. We Men do it to government. Men do it to their bosses. You do it to your husbands. Children do it to both of you as parents. And church members are supposed to do that to, to pastors in those areas where they're supposed to rule. Obey them that have the rule over you, which are limited areas, hardly ever imposed upon a church until there's some issue that needs to be decided that's a gray area in the Bible or a gray area in society. Enough. Subject, submit. Citizens subject themselves and submit themselves to civil rulers. Employees do it to masters. And wives are to do it to husbands. Women by nature don't want to submit. None of us want to submit. Right. 
That doesn't make you worse than us. We don't want to submit to those over us. And women don't like to submit to their husbands. And if you don't, if you say to yourself, I don't mind at all submitting to my husband, I would question that, that you may have deceived yourself a little bit or you don't really understand what true submission is. So be careful about jumping out there so hastily. We're not hasty to say that we love submitting to our government. Or we love submitting to our bosses on the job. Sometimes we don't feel like doing that. Prove yourself. If you really want to prove that you're submissive, then go home after these two assemblies are over today. Confess all your faults to your husband verbally and thoroughly. Get down on your knees and do it. You say, where's that in the Bible? Why don't you go read 1 Samuel chapter 25 and see how Abigail dealt with uh, her husband and especially with David. Get down on your knees. Show your humility. Show your subjection. Show your submission. I wouldn't have a problem getting down on my knee before our president. Not a problem. If that's what was expected, that's what he wanted. Get down before a judge. Listen to this. Women, women right now are irritated that I would say get down on your knees with your husband. I can feel it because I can feel my pulse. (laughs) But do you know what they want? When they're proposed to, they expect a man to get down on his knees to them. Would you pray, tell me, would you, would you help me understand the hypocrisy of that? Why in the world should a man get down on his knees to ask you to marry him? You should be down on your knees begging him to marry you. You say you're twisted. It's not the first time I've been told that. It's not the first time I've thought that. But I want you to think about the fact that women expect men to get down on a knee. If you, if you, did he get down on his knee? You know, you run into an office and say, I got proposed to last night. Did he get down on his knee? Where did that come from? So when I say, you don't have a problem submitting, go home, get down on your knees, confess all your faults to your husband, confess all the thoughts that you've had that were negative, that you have not been a good wife, that there were things that you have not done that you knew he wanted, that he asked you to do, that you've been slothful doing, and verbally reverence him. Tell him how great he is and the good things that he does and that you are thankful that God in his providential sovereignty gave him to you to be your husband, your leader, and your Lord. Call him Lord. It's going to say it in the text. It's not a commandment to call him Lord in the text. But how are you going to reverence your husband without doing something like what I just described? Because real reverence is doing something like what I just described. Women, don't forget God's creation ordinance. He created the man first, then the woman. Then the woman blew it by listening to the devil and falling for his deception. Adam didn't fall for that. Adam fell for the woman and got in trouble because he followed the woman, not because he followed the devil. Remember those things. For those two reasons, you're under the authority of the husband. You know, and I don't want to use these terms because most of you don't even know what they mean anymore, but choleric women have more trouble submitting than phlegmatic women sometimes, and phlegmatic women have their own problems. They lack in communication and initiative in the marriage. When a choleric, you know, once they get an idea, they're going to do it yesterday. And they're going to do it in such a way that probably is going to rub the fur the wrong way. But some have it easier to do, but that doesn't matter. We all have a sin nature against it, and we want to make war against it. The world is at war against submission. The world's at war against it. How do they, how have they done it? The woman's choice in marriage. Women get to choose whom they marry, 
And they think because of that, subconsciously or consciously, I can get rid of him whenever I want to. No, you can't. Once the nation of Israel said to David, God save the king. Once they said that, the army was in David's control, and if you no longer wanted David to be king, he sent the army and they burned your house to the ground and cut, cut you in pieces. That's how Nebuchadnezzar, you understand that? That's how authority works. Once you agree to the authority and put yourself in the relationship, it's a God-ordained relationship you can't get out so easily. See, in the Bible, when we read about these great holy women of old time, many of them were married by arrangement. They didn't even know the husband they were marrying. They didn't know him well. They hadn't chosen him. Their father, the two fathers had got together and chosen them. And so even those women would submit to that man that they hardly knew. Today, when a woman makes the choice of who she gets to marry, she then thinks that she can get rid of him. She thinks that because I chose him, I don't owe him all that the Bible says I owe him. Yes, you do. You know, men in their jobs are much more like women in arranged marriages. How many men, when they take a job, know who they're going to work for? I mean, know him. How many dates have they been on? On interview. Or he's asking you the questions. Think about it. Think about how men go to work and, you know, that boss retires or that boss is fired or that boss is transferred and pretty soon you have somebody new. Listen, women, the guy that you sit next to you that you've picked as your husband, oh, you did everything in your power. You were conniving. You were praying. You were begging. You were seducing. You were winning. You were writing notes. You were printing up your hair. You were cooking. You were baking. You were doing pies. You were doing cookies, cakes, and candles in order to get that guy. Now you've got him. Submit to him. Athletes submit to coaches. You know, there's one play left in the game. The best athlete in the huddle of the offensive team knows he's the best player on the field. He's the wide receiver. He wants a fly route down the right sideline with a pass into the end zone for a touchdown to win the game. The play comes in from the sideline that it's going to be a draw play. What does the wide receiver do? Punch the messenger? That's me. Don't punch me today. What does he do? He submits. Okay, let's do it. I'll throw the best block midway down the field for you to make it to the end zone from a running back position, a draw play. For, for those of you that don't know what that is, don't worry about it. It's totally unimportant. The only point that I'm trying to make is athletes know how to submit to coaches, employees to bosses, citizens to rulers. Secret service men do a decent job, don't they? Do secret service men value the life of the man that they are supposed to guard more than their own life? Are they trained to it and do they think about it? And are they trained to it and do they think about it? And are they trained to it and do they think about it so that if danger presents itself, they without thinking will sacrifice their lives for the life of the man that they are sent to protect? Remember Ronald Reagan? Those guys hurling themselves on his body? I'll absorb the bullets to protect. Women don't say that men don't submit. There's little, there's young 19 and 20 year old boys close to the age that you were when you got married that are shipped overseas. They don't understand why we're fighting, where we're fighting, who we're fighting. But when they are, when a squad is told to take out a machine gun nest, they will charge that hill though they know that they or all of them could or will die in the project. And the guy that told them to do that, they might be more intelligent than him. They might have better character than him, 
They might have better conduct than him. None of it matters. He, in his office, said, Take out that machine gun nest, or it's going to cost us a hundred lives. There's only five of you. Some of these things are not said. There's only five of you. Take it out. And they take it out. Can you, women, get up every morning and say to yourself, Lord, you created me, and you are first in my life, but you put me on earth to be a wife. You wrote 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 to me, and I want to be the best wife today, which means this man over here, sleeping beside me, snoring, hair on end, bad breath, he is my hero, he is my Lord, he is my sir, he is my purpose, he is my goal. I will do everything I can today to serve him, help him, make him better, dote on him, have sex with him, love him, serve him, take as many burdens off his plate as I possibly can, and you lean over and kiss him and go to work. You say, that sounds bizarre. It's because you live in 2014. The Bible is God's revealed will. So let's take a little survey. Genesis chapter 2. Go with me. We're going to have to turn quickly. Mafia bodyguards submit to their dons. Pilots to air traffic controllers. If a pilot's fourth in line approaching Atlanta, Hartsfield Airport, and he has an engagement that night, he has dinner that he wants to be at that night, and he's fourth in line, and they make him circle the airport one time, does he say, I, can't, I don't have time to wait, and just go ahead and pull in in front of number two? Men submit. Come on. Let's, let's make this exciting. It is exciting to lean over and kiss that guy and to prepare in your heart. Remember, it's, it's this thing. It's this. It starts in the heart. Verse four is going to be all about the heart because it starts from the inside. It's not the outward adorning. You know, don't get up and the first thing you do is go to them. I can't let them see me like this. That's not the first thing a woman should do. The first thing you should do is, I can't let the Lord or Him or me see my heart like this. I need to confess the faults of my heart and get my heart and spirit totally ready for Him. Then you can go make yourself pretty. Because it's not the outward adorning. This isn't talking about public worship and what you should wear to church. This subject is talking about what is more important to a woman. the, The attitude and spirit of her heart or her outward appearance. And it's this on the inside. And those older women, though they were beautiful... Sarah was beautiful. Rebecca was beautiful. Rachel was well favored of the Lord. These were beautiful women, but they did not adorn themselves on the outside as their priority. They adorned themselves on the inside by having a wonderful spirit. And to have followed Abraham around like this in the land of Canaan where they didn't know where they were going with no ending spot, living in tents, that's a good woman. And the Bible says she obeyed Abraham. But let's go to Genesis chapter 2. The women were created in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. There is no such word as help meet except in dictionaries that record abuse of languages. I I need to to copy it and print it to you. It means I have to type it because Oxford English Dictionary does not allow me to uh, highlight, cut, copy or and paste. The Oxford English Dictionary says that a noun helpmeet is an absurd, absurd abuse of language. <laughs> there is one noun and there is an adjective. The noun is help and the adjective is meet. God made Eve to be a helper for Adam. 
and she is a suitable fit and perfect helper. That's what it means. You say, why are you picking on that little word? Because I've heard too much about the helpmeet as if it is some mysterious office. It doesn't even exist. There is no such thing as a helpmeet. It's a helper. A help meet. The word meet, when it's M-E-E-T, M-E-A-T, you know what that is, don't you? You gotta cut it with a knife and a fork. But if it's M-E-E-T, it means fit, suitable, appropriate for Adam. I will make him a help. So notice from the very beginning, Adam was created first. He's wandering around. God says, this isn't good for him to be alone. Let me tell you something, ladies. It's a man's world. God made this world for the man. It's a man's world. He goes out and conquers it. He goes out and lives wherever he wants to. And you follow along behind him, helping him. That's the way God set it up. When a bunch of those men get together for a job, there is a some, something called a CEO and a chairman of the board and a COO. And those men make that company work and they follow him along and he pays them. And your husband, I fed all of you. You're here. This is how it works in the world. And it works wonderfully when we do it God's way. But when we look at that verse, and many things could be brought out of Genesis 2.18... The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. It is a good thing when a man has a wife. It is not a good thing when a man doesn't have a wife. But there, she's not a help meet. She's a helper. And see, that's important to me because I want a woman to understand what her role is. It is to be a helper. And the more you can learn that, I just want to help my husband. I just want to help my husband. And it has been mentioned to me this morning, and I'll say it right now since it passed through this wild mind of mine. That you ladies that work outside the home, if I were to ask you right now in private or in public, you would say, I'm doing it for my husband. I'm doing it to contribute my paycheck to our estate. I'm doing it for my husband. I'm doing it in submission to him. He wants me to do it. I'm obeying him. Great, 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 great to all those. But some fears of us, some spheres of authority can start to bump into each other. Because if you start thinking about your job when you're at home instead of thinking about your husband, or if you get your priorities out of line because your husband's more important than your boss, and your family's more important than your job, then you've made a mistake. So I want to remind every woman that works outside the home, make sure that your husband stays supreme. God made you a wife first, not a worker first. Not a worker outside the home first. He made you a wife first, and you are to be a doting, caring, loving, helping, serving wife first. If you're too tired when you get home to be the loving and doting wife that you should be in the ways that he wants you to be, you need to change your job. Or you need to hear this sermon and change your practices and habits. Because they're good, they can, they're, they're going to bump into each other. You think about your husband. Don't think about your boss. You say, well, I gotta think about my boss. Okay, think about your boss after you've thought everything you should think about your husband. He's got to come first. Or you need to change your job. You need to cut back your hours, cut back your days, or get right with the Lord right now that my husband is first. Genesis 2.18. Look at Genesis 3.16. Now the woman has sinned. God made the woman second, and God reasons from that. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul wrote, Adam was first formed, then Eve. You say, I don't know what that means to me. Yes, I know that. I can find that out from Genesis 2. The point from it is, the woman should be under the authority of the man because it's a man's world, and God created the man first as his glory and as his representative, and the woman was made to be his helper. That's what Paul's using that verse for. Paul used 1 Timothy 2.13 to prove why women should not talk in public assemblies 
of a church. Because Adam was first formed. It's his world. The woman is to help him. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what all of our grandparents understood. They did not complain or fight against it like this generation does. Even in Persia they understood it, didn't they? They understood it very well. Would to God that we can understand it very well. Genesis 3.16, After they sinned unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Thy desire shall be to thy husband. A woman loses her life plans. A woman loses her desires. Because they become her husband's desires. His desires rule the marriage. This is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to live. Abraham said, we're going to go on a trip. The trip lasted 50 years for Sarah. We're going to go on a trip. She went. His desires overruled her desires. This little, this little form of speech in the last part of verse 16, thy desire shall be to thy husband. The identical language is found in the next chapter by comparing scripture with scripture because God told Cain that Abel's desire would be your desire. What happened to Abel? What was Cain's desire for Abel? For his life to end. Did Abel want his life to end right then? Abel didn't want his life to end right then, but Cain wanted his life to end right then. So Abel's life ended right then because Cain's desire was going to rule the situation and a husband's desire rules the situation of a marriage. And he shall rule over thee. So the husband is the ruler of the marriage. The husband makes the decisions. Now if the husband delegates some of those decisions, that's okay if he delegates them. But don't you assume he's delegated them. You make sure he has plainly and unequivocally told you that he's delegating that to you. He makes the decisions. I don't care what it is, he makes the decisions. You are getting up in the morning, you are realizing before God, I'm a wife, my goal, my purpose is to help my husband. Then you start doing that. And he gets up, and he could be in a bad mood, and he wants you to do this. Clean the garage out today. You know, and if you haven't cleaned the garage in a while, it could be a, it could be a chore. He is the ruler. Go clean the garage out. He said, jump, you should say, how high? Just like the men should do on the job. Just like I preach it at men's meetings and like I've preached it to you already. Just like Harold Hester did to Ford Motor Company. When they said jump, he said, how high? And he did it for many years. And you have a great testimony of your work ethic, brother, sir, that I know from your son. And my father-in-law was a stud at Chrysler Corporation. If you ever wanted to had the interest to hear how he blew his back out for that company, unions can have rules about don't lift over 60 pounds. You got to sit down in a chair and call for a forklift to come and all that kind of stuff. You should hear about him getting a 12 foot full, a 12 foot lever on a fulcrum lifting a press with him and four guys and three of them bailed out and left him holding that thing and blew out his back. Because when they said jump or move that press, he said, give me a 12-foot pole. Now, women, come on. You can get up and clean the garage, can't you? Do you hear me? Ladies, do you hear me? He shall rule over thee. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Lord, help me. 
In my old age, I have forgot all time management. Well, I could just go back to 105-minute summons. That would help. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I would have you know, this is something Paul wants you to know. This is something God wants you to know. That the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Is Christ equal to God? Does Christ submit Himself to God? Jesus Christ will be in subjection to God throughout eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. The man is under Christ. Christ is His head. Christ directs Him. The man directs the family. The head. Headship. Lordship. Rulership. God. Christ. Man. Woman. That's God's order. Love it. Embrace it. Practice it. Fulfill it. Prove it in your life. There's only one way you're ever going to get that epitaph. A daughter of Sarah. A princess in diamond with God. And it's to do it this way. God, Christ, my husband, me. I'm willing, Lord, meaning husband, yes, sir. I will clean that garage today. Tell me how you want it done. Tell me when you want it done if you don't already know. Don't ask him foolish questions if you already know. That's answering again. That's answering again, and men in the job don't even do that. We can come down through here to verse 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. The man wasn't made by taking a rib out of the woman. The woman was made by taking a rib out of the man. She's just a little extension, a little part of him. Verse 9, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. It is not a partnership. God didn't create men and women for each other. He didn't create them at at the same time. He created the man first. It's a man's world. Then He created the woman to help him. And she was made for him. He was not made for her. This is a rule of the Word of God. This is a rule of the Gospel. This is a rule of Jesus Christ. This is a rule of Christianity. Every morning when a woman gets up, she should remember why she was created. She was made for him. He wasn't made for her. She shouldn't be bellyaching that he's not doing enough for her. She should be bellyaching she's not doing enough for him. I love 1 Corinthians 11.9. It won't make you very many friends, especially with the fairer sex, but it's true. It's true, so we preach it. Verse 10, for this cause, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Women ought to have long hair because of the angels that witness authority in the household of God. Having power on her head is a symbol of being under the authority of a man on her head. Because that's what this context is about. It's about her hair and it's about her head coverings. Whenever she was to speak in public assemblies, when God inspired women to pray or prophesy by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I've taught this passage before, I am certainly not going to go down that rabbit trail right now. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels, that is hair, and that is a head covering if you're speaking in public. If you're not speaking in public, and we no longer speak in public since the days of the apostles, she's to have long hair because it says in verse 15, if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. That's the covering that shows she's under authority. You know, the man's to have a bare head because he is under Christ directly. And in a public assembly, the woman is under the man, so she is to have that drape over her head of her hair or even an additional hair covering in those days to show her subordination to the man. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman. Neither the woman without the man. God expects men and women to get together and to get married under one condition, in the Lord. They're both in the Lord. They both fear God. They're both going to live by the Bible. 
For as the woman is of the man, she was made from his rib, even so is the man also by the woman. We are all born into this world through our mothers, but all things of God. It all comes back to God made all things, and God has the right to to detail how they should be fulfilled. That's 1 Corinthians 11. Look at 14 of this same epistle. 1 Corinthians 14. Let your women keep silence in the churches. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. It was true under the Old Testament. It's true under the New Testament. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. If they will learn something, it's not their job to go search the Internet. It's not their job to go to a Christian bookstore and buy books. It's their job to go ask their husband. You say, well, I don't know if my husband will have the answer. Then he can come to me and I'll get him the answer. It doesn't really matter if he has it or not. If he says, I don't know, then it's his job to come and ask someone else, not yours. You're subordinate to your husband. You say, well, that means I could end up without having as much knowledge as some other marriages. We told you that before you married them. Don't be surprised now. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We just want to take a survey of both Testaments and see what God has said about this subjection. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives. Paul's very specific. Sometimes, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, sounds like 1 Peter 3.1, as unto the Lord. Ladies, do it as if you were submitting to Christ. Do it as if your husband was Jesus Christ the Lord. When you prepare a meal for him, it's as if it was the Lord. I've done that countless times on the job. I've made sandwiches in a deli and I've made thousands of them as if each one was for the Lord. For all those who know, is there supposed to be four circles of one quarter inch width of mustard on every sandwich that calls for mustard? Or does it get a blob in the uh, the left quarter of it? Because the Lord could be out there. And when the Lord eats a sandwich, He better get the same taste profile in every bite. You better do it the right way. Wives, you ought to do it the right way. So it says here, as unto the Lord, you're doing it as unto the Lord. The, the whole part of your life, cleaning out the closet, making love to Him, fixing a meal, washing the clothes, folding the laundry, all of it as unto the Lord. The men are supposed to work as unto the Lord. Wives are supposed to submit as unto the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. We've already read that in 1 Corinthians 11.3. For the husband is the head of the wife. This, is, this explains why she is supposed to submit. Even as Christ is the head of the church. Wow, that is an authority difference, isn't it? And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That's not the things that you want to submit in. That's not the things that are easy to submit in. In everything. Those are the things. You gotta submit in things when he's irritated you. You gotta submit in things when you're not feeling as well. Submit. As the church submits to Christ. Do we get to come in here some Sundays and say, I'm just tired and discouraged about life and I no longer want to submit to Christ? Lord help us. Look at verse 33 of this chapter. This is a great 
No, nevertheless, verse 33, Ephesians 5, 33, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Reverence. Reverence. Worship. Adoration. Honor. All of you mothers that have children of age know the difference that I have taught faithfully and clearly between a child obeying and a child honoring. See, submission is in verses 22 through 24. Submission isn't in verse 33. Reverence is in verse 33. When we get to 1 Peter 3, 6, it is going to say, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, obedience, calling him Lord. Two things. Two things here. Submission and reverence. How do you reverence your husband? How do you set him? What does reverence mean? How do you set him apart as being special? How do you honor him? How do you show him a little bit of worship, a little bit of honor, a little bit of adoration? And I don't mean anything that you owe God, but he, but authorities in the Bible are called little gods with a little G. They are. So I want to be careful by not backing off too much. How do you reverence your husband? Reverence him. Do you say sir to him? Can you, you know, if you, if you listen to those sermons from 1988, I said there's, there's one wife in this church that always calls her husband sir. Some of you that were here then, I had to be reminded. I have a weak memory. My wife wasn't so weak. She remembered. How, how surprised would your husband be if you said, yes sir. Yes, sir. And you, and you meant it. I mean, the words were full of submission, humility, and reverence. How do you reverence him? How do you make him special? How do you lift him up and put him on high? He's not your equal. He's your head. The Bible says right here, 533, the wife see that she reverenced her husband. Do you know what that verb see there it means? Make sure. Make sure that you reverence your husband. This is what makes the world go round. These are the marvelous things God has created. These fears of authority, if we do them right, they're wonderful. Everybody's happy. Everyone wins when we do it God's way. I've known women that didn't submit as well as other women, and I can tell you which women were the happiest. I was unhappy when I wasn't submitting to authority, and happiness came through doing it God's way. Look at Colossians 3.18. Just over a few pages to the right. Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. There it is again. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And you will notice that the wife's submission comes first. The husband's love of his wife comes next. Then the children's obedience and honor to parents and then the father is properly fulfilling his job. And if you think about that order, there's nothing wasted in the Bible. If you think about that order, when those little children come into the world, what should they see? What's the first authority structure they really get a, a visual impression of? Mom and dad. And if mom is submitting and obeying and serving and helping and loving and doting and reverencing her husband, the little child grows up, the, the sons know, that's the kind of woman I want. The daughters know that's the kind of wife I need to be. 
because of that order right there. But Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're surveying the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Do you know that modern women hate Paul? Do you know that there are books that are written against Paul? Like Paul was some male chauvinist pig? Like Paul was some Neanderthal caveman? Like Paul was out of touch with reality? Like because Paul didn't have a wife, he didn't know how to relate to women, and he didn't know how to write the Bible about women? That stuff's been going down now for a couple generations in this sick country. Paul was writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. These are the words of God. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Do you need any explanation of that verse? It's self-evident that in the public assemblies of the church, women do not speak, they learn in silence. They do not even ask questions, like 1 Corinthians 14 forbid them to even ask questions. Verse 12, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Her authority is under the man. He is her head. And she is to submit and be in subjection. And now there are two explanations for it given by the Apostle Paul. Number one, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. That's Genesis 2.18. Verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. That's Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. This is how it all comes together. The Apostle Paul has told women they can't speak in the church. Here are the two reasons why. Nevertheless, if you women will be faithful... Jesus Christ came to save you even from the curse of ruining it in the Garden of Eden. That's verse 15. It's a wonderful verse. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Holy women fulfilling their roles are showing the evidence of eternal life secured by the childbearing of Mary, which was the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for them. Look at Titus chapter 2. You say, I didn't know it was in the Bible this many times. Yes, you did. Titus chapter 2, Titus 2, verse 3, the aged women all likewise, the aged women likewise, the older women in a church, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. What does that mean? Does that mean walking around like a Roman Catholic nun? Or is 1 Peter 3 going to tell us that a holy woman is a woman that Submits to her husband with a meek and quiet spirit. Yes. That's what a holy woman is in this kind of a context. Be in behavior as becometh holiness. And here's the explanation. Not false accusers. Not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. That they may teach the younger women to be sober. To love their husbands. To love their children. And that's a good order right there. The love of husbands comes before the love of children. To be discreet. Chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. One of the reasons we want to do this is to protect the gospel of Jesus Christ from being blasphemed by people who know what the Bible says and they see marriages in our church that don't match up to what the Bible says. We want to live in such a way that we shut the mouths of gainsayers. We want to live in such a way that we adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we have our first Peter 3. God has different results. God, look at that, from Genesis chapter 2 all the way to First Peter chapter 3, we have these different places in the Bible where God says the woman is under 
subjection and submission to her husband. She is to obey him. She is to reverence him. He is her head. He is her ruler. She loses her desires for his desires. God has different results, standards, and laws for husbands and wives. In Numbers chapter 30, there is an ex- a chapter is given to the fact that if a man makes a vow to God, God's going to hold him accountable for it. If a woman makes a vow to God, can the man step in between God and her vow? Yes, he can disallow it. If a daughter still living at home makes a vow, can he step in and disallow that? Yes, he can. That shows the authority of a father, and it shows the authority of a husband, even in matters pertaining to God. Now, do I, I don't need to explain to this church, do I, that those were free will offerings of a voluntary sort that those people made? That does not mean that a man can disallow God's law governing that woman. Right. We are talking about a free will offering of that woman toward God. Does everybody understand that? There's no way that a, that a, that a husband can say, I don't care what God said. I want you to sit down with me tonight and watch this X-rated movie. That is not in Numbers chapter 30 whatsoever. Look at the difference. So a man, he makes a vow and God holds him accountable for it. But if a woman, it doesn't matter if she prayed for a week and fasted for two weeks and then made a voluntary free will offering to God and, and said to her husband, husband, I've been fasting for the last two weeks and I've prayed for the last week. I want to go to Jerusalem and make a free will offering to the Lord. And she says it with tears streaming down her face. And he says, I can't afford to have you away from the household right now. I disallow that vow. Is that a right course of action? Absolutely. Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 through 16. You say, that's severe. Well, we're just getting started. Um, there's differences between the men and the women. There's differences. Now, you know what a good husband would do? Unless he really needed her at the farm. A good husband would look at those tears, and he would already have known that she'd been fasting for two weeks and praying for a week. And he would say, I want the blessing of God on this house. Wife, what sheep were you going to take? I was just going to take this one here, take this one as well. The Lord bless you. Here's a hundred bucks for spending money on the way. You say, well, what if my husband doesn't say that and just disallows it? Then you say, yes, sir. I will not go to Jerusalem. I'll be here and I'll be your wife. What would you like me to do next? This is the way it works. This is the way the Bible lays it out for us. God protects husbands. God has rules. God has differences. Let me, let, me, let me remind you of a few. A woman is anatomically different from a man in that fornication before marriage is given away by a hymen. Just think about that. It's in the Bible. Tokens of virginity were expected of a woman. There's no such thing for a man. That doesn't mean that a man's sin is different. It means that a man does not owe his righteousness and virtue to his wife. It means a man owes his righteousness and virtue to the God of heaven. It doesn't lessen it at all. It just means that it's different. And a husband gets to hold his wife accountable, but the wife does not get to hold the husband accountable in the same way under God's law. Women get pregnant when they have intercourse outside of marriage. Men don't get pregnant. That's why it was brought, the news was brought to Judah in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar is with child by whoredom. How'd they know it was by whoredom? How'd they know she had committed whoredom? How'd they know that Tamar was a whore? Judah's daughter-in-law. Because she was pregnant. And she wasn't married. The test of jealousy in the Bible. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. 20 verses about the test of jealousy. A husband could take his wife down to the priest 
And that priest would bring an oath upon that girl and ask her if she had been unfaithful to her husband. And if she had been unfaithful, she would, she would rot on the spot in her loins. Figure out where that is. If she hadn't been, if she hadn't been unfaithful, I hope I said that the right way. If she had been unfaithful, she would rot on the spot under the curse of God. And he didn't have to have any evidence. All he had to do was have a feeling. It says so in the Bible. It says in 20 verses, Numbers 5, verses 11 through 31. See, nobody else preaches this. I'm just a crazy, I'm just a crazy voice in the wilderness, but I will preach the whole counsel of God and I will preach it aggressively and boldly and plainly. And I will bring it to bear that this is how God wants us to think about the husband-wife relationship. Just like when I preach on civil authority, I preach it to a point to where some of you think that I'm extreme, but I'm biblical. It's severe in the Bible. Cut his head off. It's severe in the Bible. It's severe in the Bible. Could a master in the Bible beat his servant? If he survived 24 hours and died the second day... Was there anything required of that master for doing that to his servant? No. Well, then what restraint would there be? The laws of nature. Men don't destroy good property. And that's how the Lord appealed to it. Sisters, you were made to be his helper. One of the things dearest to a man is to know that sexually you are all his, only his, forever his. God knows that. And so God expects it. God commands it. God makes you anatomically different from the man. God causes you to conceive. God had a test of jealousy in the Bible for a man that may have been away on business and when he came home he was just worried because he knew he had a pretty wife and he could take her down to the priest. If she was guiltless of any adultery, she would conceive and have a son, have a child. So the Lord would reward her for going through the little painful episode of the jealous hut. It's right for a husband to be jealous. Don't any of you women mock a jealous husband. Jealousy is a function of love. Go read Song of Solomon chapter 8. Jealousy the other way around isn't really known in the Bible. It's a husband jealous of his wife because his wife is his. It was different the other way because he is not yours in the same way. He commits himself to you and therefore he owes to God his sexual fidelity to you and to God. But he owes it to God. The test of jealousy wasn't for husbands. It was for women. It was for wives. You know, God allowed polygamy. God allowed men to have multiple wives. It was not his ideal. It was, it was foolish, but he allowed it. But he had never allowed polyandry. He was so opposed to a woman having two husbands that if a woman was married to a man, he divorced he divorced her, and, and she went away and married another man, and that man died. Now, has she done anything wrong yet? First husband divorced her. Second husband died. She could not come back to the first husband. But a man could have multiple wives. God told David when he confronted David by the prophet Nathan, Thou art the man. He said, I made you king over Israel and I gave you your master's household and all his wives and concubines and all the wives you've already got. And if that wouldn't have been enough, I'd have given you whatsoever you needed. What in the world did you touch another man's wife for? See, it, it is an Abigail. 
Abigail was David's wife. It wasn't Abigail confronting David. It was God Almighty confronting David. And if everyone is listening to me and being honest with how I am trying to present this as plainly as possible, men are not excused from sexual sins whatsoever. It is that they owe their responsibility to God first. That is why we had presented this pulpit a few months ago and very well done from Psalm 51. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. The sin wasn't against Uriah. The sin wasn't against Bathsheba. The sin wasn't against Abigail. The sin was against God. Joseph understood that when he was grabbed by Mrs. Potiphar. He said, how can I commit this great sin against God? I'm just showing you that there's these differences made in the Bible. The Lord showed me these things when I was a teenager. Studying God's Word because I was so frustrated with the whorish girls that I had known in my life before the Lord sent me the snow-driven pure wife that I have today. And I'm very thankful for her. Polygamy was allowed, but polyandry never was. There was severe punishment in the Bible for a woman even touching another man's secrets when she did it for good reason. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, a a husband of a woman is fighting with another man and she wants to help her husband. And so she she runs over and grabs the other man by his secrets because that is the most tender part of a man's external anatomy. Cut off her hand. Wow, Lord! Are you serious? Don't anyone think me disrespectful. I'm doing it on your behalf because I think it makes perfectly good sense. Well, sort of. She is. She has a good motive. She is trying to protect her husband. This is how strict the Bible is. Why isn't it taught? Why don't you go to YouTube and type in sermons on grabbing another man's secrets? How many will you get? What does God do about odious wives that don't submit, are mouthy, yak a lot, question, nag? What does he do to them in the book of Proverbs? Does he mock them and ridicule them? He does indeed. Look at just one or two with me. Which one do you want to start with? 19.13. Proverbs 19.13. This is the word of the Lord. Listen, there's 168 hours in a week. Are you tired? I'm working harder than you are. My job is easier than yours, though, in this respect. I'm active. It keeps me awake. But I wouldn't sleep right now. There's 168 hours in a week. The world is bombarding you with a completely different idea of how marriage should be compared to this. This is what God thinks of a woman who's not quiet, who's not meek, who's not reserved, who doesn't reverence her husband who questions, who argues, who nags, who quarrels, who suggests all... Listen, if we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. Young young guys, don't ever marry an opinionated girl. Now hear me very carefully. What do we mean by an opinionated girl? That's a girl who tells you her opinions when you didn't ask them. Do you know what it's called for us men working on the job? Not answering again. When our bosses tell us something to do, do we have opinions about what they ask us to do? Do we tell them our opinions? No, we say, how high? And we go do what they told us to do. A godly woman has opinions. A godly wife has opinions. But she doesn't give those opinions 
until she's asked. And when she's asked, she gives them humbly, respectfully, and at the end, she says, and if you don't like it, you can just go ahead and do it your way. And just flush the whole idea. But a good husband will have already heard. But see, he asked first. I made a comment a few moments ago that if, that if our president, President Obama, were to come and visit our church, I would honor him. And I would honor him. And I'd honor him aggressively for the Lord's sake. Because God in his providence raised him up to be the president of our country as much as he raised up Nebuchadnezzar to be the king of Babylon. But if that president took me to lunch, wow, um, and said, what do you think the biggest problems in America are? Do you have any opinions? I'd have a few. I don't want to be disrespectful. But you know, same thing at the same thing at the bank. President Andrew R. Broden would come by and say, "Hey, let's go to lunch today." What do you think's wrong in this division or this department in the bank? Well, sir, this and this are not being done, knowing that men's jobs are on the line. And when a wife is asked, she may humbly, respectfully give her opinion. But your husband isn't looking for your opinion until he asks. Can you understand that? Every sphere of authority works that way. Proverbs 19, 13, A foolish son is the calamity of his father. And I was the calamity of Rowland Crosby until God saved me. And the contentions of a wife are a continual dropping. It's like having a leaky roof in your house and the rain's just dripping through like drip, 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 drip. I know you're thinking, stop. Well, drip, leaky roofs don't stop. Drip, drip. And, and that's God's comparison. See, he's making fun of a woman. Oh, you got to be kidding. No, no. 21.9. It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. There's a woman. Nag this. Nag that. Question this. Suggest this. When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? Oh, no! So he runs to his garage. He runs to his workshop. He runs to the woods to hunt. He runs to the lake to fish. He runs to the golf course to golf. He's got to get away from the noise! You say, God isn't very nice to women. No, you're wrong. A daughter of Sarah, a princess, and diamond with God. God is nice to women. God isn't nice to odious women. So you have a choice. Are you going to be odious or are you going to be virtuous? A virtuous woman submits herself to her husband and she does it cheerfully. She understands that she was made to be his helper. She wants to help him be the best. She will do anything she can to make him great. She will do everything she can to make him happy. She will do everything she can to make him sexually fulfilled. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-5, through 5, she will not defraud her husband. She understands that her body was created for his pleasure and that she will give him what, where, when, and how he likes it and how often he needs it or wants it. And he, she won't, he won't have to ask for it. He won't have to leave notes around the house. He won't have to huff or puff. He won't have to slam doors or drop hammers. She'll know it and do it. She'll wake up every day and she'll do it with diligence and she'll do it with cheerfulness and she'll reverence him. 
She'll verbally dote on him. You women have been taught some of these things by my wife in your ladies' meetings over the last couple of years. I pray that you'll remember them right now in light of God's Word and it coming from the pulpit. She takes those little efforts once a quarter because Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 indicates that such should be done. And so to make sure that it's done, we do that. She hates the job. She despises it. She would rather be taught. I would rather be taught. I never wanted this job. But this is the Word of God and this is truth and we want to all obey it. God doesn't like odious women. God loves virtuous women. They are a, they are a crown and a jewel of His creation. Men know that a great woman with a right heart and a right spirit is the most beautiful thing. It is in the sight of God Himself, and God has a measure of beauty that we cannot even consider. But He says that a woman with a meek and quiet spirit and a heart that wants to subject herself to her husband and surrender to Him and help Him is of great price in His sight. God looks upon it, and God is pleased, and God is happy, and His countenance is blessed by seeing a woman that dotes on her husband, reverences him. Of course he's got faults. Of course he's got failures. Of course he's got sins. It has nothing to do with your duty toward him. It doesn't have anything to do with it at all. Our president has faults. Your pastor has faults. Your your boss at work has faults. It doesn't have a thing to do. It's the office. God put him in that office. And every office that has ever been on earth except the King of Kings has had faults, failures, and sins. And we submit to them all anyway. And we do not make a difference. First Peter chapter 2, just before we get to this place, tells us that a servant should not just be in subjection to a good and gentle master, but also to a forward one. Because ability... Character, conduct have nothing to do with your responsibilities as a wife, as a servant, as a citizen, as a church member, and as a child. Every one of you children, you have parents with faults. Because you live with them, you can see their faults. You can see their moods. They don't rule their spirit. You can hear their words. They don't rule their tongue. They don't do things consistently. They don't obey what's taught from this pulpit, from the Word of God. You still obey them and give them all the honor and reverence that you should. Because that's what the Bible expects. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands. When we come back from our break, we'll try to make a little more progress through those six verses. My, my dear sisters, let it be excited. I, by God's grace, by God's grace, He's taught me to be excited about submitting to civil authority. If He can teach me to be excited about submitting to civil authority, He can teach you about being excited submitting to your husband. I want you all to have that epitaph. I'm sorry that when you leave this church that there's no more reminders of these things this way. We are very much alone Not absolutely. In general, we're alone in the doctrine that we hold from the Word of God because there's a famine for the Word of God. Amos 8 said there would be. 2 Timothy 4 says they have turned their ears away from the truth and have been turned unto fables. And it is true. Fables, like men and women are equal in marriage, like their partners, like he's supposed to submit to me, You should hear the stuff that comes out nowadays. 
This is the word of the Lord. If you want to hear more, there's a second assembly. If you want to hear more, there's sermons that have been preached in the past. I'll trust God to bless the feeble effort to remind you of what a great marriage you could have by just learning submission, subjection, reverence, and obedience. Surrendering surrendering yourself to be His helper. Making Him the chief goal of your life on earth. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.